the Farm Advisory Service podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government. I'm Kerry Hammond and on this episode of the Farm Advisory podcast, we give you a taster of what some of Scottish farming's best collaborators think that you should consider about informal neighbouring, formalised co-ops, market collaboration, international examples and more. First, I sat down with Anna Robertson, the Co-op Development and Training Manager at SAOS. Um, so just as you said, Kerry, tonight we're going to have a bit of an um, informal chat about informal cooperation how it works, what the benefits are, and hear firsthand from Hector and Caroline on their experience about how cooperation has worked for them and their businesses. I'm sure a lot of us cooperate informally already. We probably just don't recognize that we're actually doing it. And many of us could probably work together far more than we do um, already. So hopefully tonight, and we can share some examples with you um, about how you might want to work together with your neighbours or family, friends a bit more. So just as a quick introduction to SUS, um, we are Scotland's experts on farmer co-ops and food industry collaboration. We are a membership owned organisation and support over 60 co-ops across Scotland who are our members. They, they govern what we do, so everything from mussels to peas and venison to arable co-ops. So a really wide um, selection of member-owned businesses right here in Scotland. There are so many benefits of working together, right from sharing resources through neighbouring and um, joint ventures um, and how that can help you reduce your fixed costs. And um, for example, right up to your sort of supply marketing um, uh, co-ops at, at the other end. So from independent research, um, we estimated that around 57% of Scottish farms are already involved in some type of cooperation. And that breaks down into around 22% um, informal cooperation, so that's neighbouring and joint ventures, and around 35% um, of farms are part of uh, a co-op, for example, Tayforth machinery ring or, um, or Borders machinery ring, for example. But we do think that those figures um, underestimate the, the, the amount of informal cooperation that's actually going on on farm. Um, you know, as I said at the beginning, people don't perhaps appreciate that they're actually cooperating already. So to me, informal cooperation is built upon trust, um, whereby two or more businesses um, work together for mutual benefit. And looking into the future, we, we at SUS, we really see um, the industry needing to um, cooperate and work together more and we would really like to see that increase because there, there is going to be a need um, we all know that there's going to be a cut in farm support and at the moment there'll be some farms in Scotland that are struggling to make a sustainable profit without that farm subsidy um, there's certainly a shortage of labour and skills and, and how can we get that? Can we get that from working with other people, with our neighbours? Um, you know, what do they have that could benefit us and what do we have that can benefit them? There are huge changes and challenges ahead, not just in relation to um, farm support. Um, you know, again, as we, as we go further down the line, the effects of Brexit, um, you know, the, the COVID recovery plan, how does that affect us as, as farming businesses in Scotland? Many farms now are over mechanised, but it does mean that um, a lot of farms in Scotland now have very high fixed costs. Um, and in order for us to stay um, uh, profitable, you know, how can we again work with other people to reduce those fixed costs and to have more money staying within our business um, than than um, it going elsewhere. It can help build a community. Um, I think more, uh, more so in the last probably 12 to 18 months, it, it's very easy for, um, for farming people to feel um, isolated. Haven't seen many people over the, last, over the last year, certainly. 
So, um, you know, informal cooperation allows you to get to know your neighbours a bit better um, and just to be able to go and have that chat with them. Um, so informal cooperation doesn't just have to be about um, sharing resources. It can just be about, you know, having that relationship with your next door neighbour. It can help improve health and safety. I think the figures at the moment say that um, one person in the UK a, year, uh, a, a week, sorry, um, dies on a farm. Um, you know, having more people with you on farm to help with those tasks, whether it's handling cattle or, um, you know, silage operations to, to allow everyone to feel comfortable in, in the role that they've got and for things to happen as they should. Um, it is always going to be a benefit. And finally, it's, it's just a great opportunity. You'll, you know, great things come out, out from people working together. And um, so hopefully, hopefully we can share some more of those um, later on with you. Next up, we spoke to Hector Munro from Fineless Farm. I'm a, a completely I'm completely sold on cooperation, always have been ever since as a student in UIST, I, I noticed how all the crofters uh, work together and I came back from there convinced that that's how we should be doing it, but on a bigger scale. So a little bit about my history, I returned to the family farm in 1973. It was very much a traditional farm then, 100 um, fattening cattle, 650 ewes, maybe 400 acres of cereals and a couple of hundred acres of grass and uh, some woodland. And that was about it. Uh, I went through various changes. I got rid of the ewes uh, because they, we were losing a lot of them to Yagsiecti pneumonia. Um, I then tried a suckler herd, built that up to 170 uh, suckler cows. Then I couldn't really make that work. Um, it, it, it worked, but it wasn't making me a lot of money. It was keeping several men in a job. Um, and then I decided to actually get rid of all the livestock because I sat down and did the figures and realized that a lot, an awful lot of labor was spent on the livestock, whereas the arable side um, tended to be just two peaks of, of um, spring and, and summer and the rest of the year there wasn't a lot of labour involved um, and by 2000 we had about 350 hectares of arable, 65 hectares of permanent pasture and 95 hectares of woodland and at that time a key employee was due to retire, he had a couple of years left and our son uh, was about to come home but he'd trained as a mechanical engineer and he certainly didn't want to sit on a tractor for 24 seven. So he already had his little engineering workshop and engineering business. Um, and I didn't particularly want to train up another man. So, and looking at malting barley margins, they were a bit tight at the time. Our machinery was due for an upgrade. And I just felt that we were in a, a, a position where a big change had to be made. And at that time, I, I certainly knew about Velcourt and Farm Care, which was previously the co-op. And I thought, well, that was maybe a model that might be looked at. But when I investigated, I went down to England, looked at um, both setups, but they were really on a much, much bigger scale than I envisaged. Um, we approached, I think, the co-op finally, uh, but they needed about 1,200 hectares to make it actually work for them and they had nowhere north of Aberdeen so I, I, I put that on hold and I began to talk to, to some of our very close neighbours but nobody was actually ready and I think your business has to be ready uh, for cooperation and neither you know uh, certainly locally I couldn't find anyone who um, really felt they were ready to cooperate. So I then heard of a, a, a farming business who we knew quite well, the family, um, 12 miles away, who had two sons who were, were now at home. And we approached them, or they approached us, I can't remember how it worked, and we decided to start working together. Uh, and we did that for maybe two, three seasons. 
and we realized we got on quite well both farms sort of fitted together in that they were on the black isle which is earlier than us we've got fairly heavy soil so tend to be later and that's quite important too when you're thinking of cooperatives especially in arable that there is some sort of window where um maybe one business has an advantage over the other and you play to that uh, advantage and we decided then to finally um, formalize the whole thing and with the help of SOS we formed a limited uh, company called Highland Land Management and that was incorporated in 2003 and what the model we did was uh, we put all our arable equipment and that was really the cereal growing equipment not anything else and had it valued by two local machinery dealers so we got an average price and we then put all that each family business put that into the limited company as their capital and having got it into the limited company we then decided to rationalize it and obviously we each had seed drills and whatever and we decided to just scale up get rid of the the units that were duplicated like rollers and various things and scale up so that we could deal with the the increased hectareage and um, both individual businesses held equal shares in that company we did get a small grant startup grant from highlands and islands enterprise and that's something that again when you're beginning to cooperate it's a new business it's worth investigating if there are any grants out there from your enterprise company or other sources now the benefits well again i can only really speak from our point of view uh, as a family business and the biggest one was freeing up time um and it allowed us um, both my son and i to investigate various diversification uh interests it also helped uh, hugely on financial savings in that uh, Things like, for instance, after our key man retired, for about five years, we employed nobody on this business. And we used, within Highland Land Management, we were using one or two regular employees, but also uh, casuals. And it also meant keeping machinery up to date so that we always had the best of kit. And the work got done on a timely basis, and there were very few breakdowns and so the whole thing worked excellently um, and it gave for me a better work-life balance. So what does cooperation mean for our business? Well, it's provided a reliable, efficient service at an affordable price. It's cut our costs dramatically and it's allowed flexibility in both our land use and our business development. Um, without cooperation, we probably wouldn't have enough time to do all these extras and we'd less likely certainly less likely to have invested in the other business areas and we still would be fully reliant on arable cropping and having been more or less 100% reliable on it less than 60% of our income now comes from arable cropping um highland land management finally wound up in 2018 but without any hesitation at all we simply went straight to another neighbor and uh, uh, with a similar farming business, approached them and said, what about cooperating? It really works. And that's what we're doing with now into our third season of cooperating um, with another neighbor. And it's working really well. It's a different model, a much more flexible, loose model, but it, it works quite well. Cooperation, it's a bit like a marriage and I've got quite a bit of experience in that. I think I'm in my 48th year of marriage. Uh, it's got its ups and downs, but undoubtedly the benefits far outweigh the disadvantages. So thank you for listening. Let's hear now from Caroline Black, the director of Black's Agri-Services. She's going to tell us why she started a chemical buying group. So I'm Caroline. I um, started um, an agricultural chemical buying group in 2016. So after um, I got pregnant with the first set of twins, I stopped working for Angus Softroots and started buying inputs for the family farm. Um, 
And I was quickly realizing that with just buying for one farm, it was very hard to negotiate on price as much as I tried. Um, and Hugh had a very good discussion group with some of his peers. And I suggested that he start a buying group with these peers um, and he'd have a far better negotiating power to try and get some better prices to reduce inputs and, and increase margins. And he quickly suggested that I should do it. Um, so I applied to Scottish Enterprise to their rural leadership scheme, um, their rural leadership program even, and they were absolutely fantastic. It was a, a great program. It was 12 days um, over one winter and um, they really pushed you to set out your goals, your objectives and really um, put everything into place and help you make everything you needed to happen happen. So um, in 2016, I started the buying group. Um, I decided to start the buying group. I then spoke to our local independent agronomist who we were using on the farm um, and he just thought that this was exactly what Angus was needing and was really supportive and completely behind the group um, or the idea of it. So he introduced me to his um, his agronomy group that he ran within Angus and introduced me to them and let me kind of put my my idea across and um, and 11 growers locally decided that um, they would trust me uh, very willingly and um, we started the buying group so that was um, in 2016 and we've now grown very organically and um, have just over 20 growers and just under 6,000 hectares. So how I run it is um, the independent agronomist will still um, go into the farmer, give them the prescription that they need, and then they give that prescription to me. I have either already um, priced what they needed because I'm talking quite a lot with the agronomists, with the distributors, I've priced in advance of the season, um, just to be as ready and prepared as possible. Um, with I keep pricing throughout the season to make sure everything's up to date. Um, so I then get the prescription and I look at whatever distributor, um, could be from five different ones, um, and has the best um, price and I get that order put in and get it delivered on farm. The distributor still invoices direct to the farmer and then I put um, a percentage fee on that and that gets invoiced along with the agreed price to the farmer um, so they can double check it. So what have we achieved in the five years? So um, the company has, has grown organically through word of mouth um, which I think says a lot. Um, we've maintained um, all the original growers who have started with us. Um, I've developed relationships with distribution, with agronomists, um, with clients, and um, I've made savings for everybody so far, which is really good. Um, you'll probably laugh, but I do rate it. Like if you could bring your wife out for a meal or, you know, away for a weekend or going on a ski holiday, if I can, you know, if I can save that money for every farmer, then I'm absolutely delighted. Um, and just also to say, which I know um, isn't usual, but a farmer joined our group last year. He completely changed his model. He bought traditionally from one big distributor and they supplied the agronomy team. Um, and he has quite a lot of cereals, but by changing his he completely changed his um, his his outlook and went with the independent agronomist, and I bought his chemicals. But based on what the independent agronomist um, prescribed for his farm, he actually saved one hundred thousand pounds last year just on his cereals. And he's a massive um, cereal farmer, so you know that is quite a substantial saving. Um, obviously, that doesn't happen every day, but um, you know it is something to to look at that it is worth looking around it's worth you know trying to reduce all those inputs and looking at how you can and this is this is one area um, that I focused on that you know to try and get the best price possible um, buying most cost effectively um, and trying to get any deals possible. Next on the podcast we're going to Jim Booth Head of Co-op Development at SAOS. He's going to speak to us about how to build a sustainable business model in a co-op. 
So we'll, we'll, we'll kick off. Uh, I appreciate I'm probably talking to a mixed audience. There'll be those of you who are involved, already involved in co-ops. So you're, you've got a great understanding about cooperation, while others may have, uh, have limited experience, but I hope my talk is of interest to you both. I'd like to kick off by saying all through the history of mankind, people have worked together and cooperated. It's, it's in our DNA, so cooperation is nothing new. It's the cornerstone, really, of our evolution. After all, humans are social animals, we like each other's company. We need that for friendship, for fun, etc. It supports our well-being. But of course, cooperation, as we know it, is principally about economic gain. So it's that there has to be a commercial reason for individuals to work together. So we have a long, proud history of cooperation in Scotland. So it's people working together to overcome the challenges of farming in Scotland in terms of our land and climate constraints, and also our distance from our main markets, which is down in England. What is a co-op and how is it different? First thing I should say is cooperation is, is massive around the world. You know, a billion people depend on their livelihood on co-ops. And there's three times as many people who are a member of a co-op than have our own shares. You know, it's, it's just massive. And even in the UK, where we're lagging behind the rest of the world, we've got over 7,000 co-ops in the UK contributing £38 billion pounds and having something like 14 million members. So one in five people in the UK are a member of the co-op. So it's, it's, you know, it is a big, it's a significant uh, contributor to the, to the UK economy. However, that said, one of the problems about cooperation is the co-op business model is not well understood. The first thing, and that's a key distinction about co-ops, that the members are both the owner and the customer. So they're the customer of this service, and that makes them unique. And ownership matters. You know, there's that psychological aspect of being a, a member and a joint owner of the business as well. The focus of a co-op is about member benefit. So it's not on external shareholder returns. So the profit, the surplus is retained amongst members and the farming community rather than leaked away to external shareholders. And that's really important. Co-op members also have real control rights. So, and that's protected by co-op law, which is really strong. And that's in your co-op rules. That's unlike if you're a shareholder, and a shareholder, you don't have any control rights at all. The only rights you have is either to buy or sell your shares. So it's totally different. And we talk about co-ops having multiple bottom lines. So first and foremost, there has to be, it must be economically competitive. It must be a viable business in return, a profit. You know, that's a given because it's, a, you know, we're operating in a very competitive commercial markets. But also there's other uh, other focus when you're talking about a co-op as well. So there's this bit about looking after our members, helping our members to improve their performance. There's a bit about care for the community. There's a whole bit about the social capital bit, local employment, the local facilities. And that's why we talk about this uh, multiple bottom lines. In a commercial company, an investor-only company, it's all about profit and profit maximization. In a co-op, it's much broader and it involves multiple bottom lines. And when you think about a co-op, a co-op is all about people. It's all about people. People coming together to achieve something that they can't do individually. And it's people who have a common purpose. While in an investor-owned company, it's all about capital. It's all about capital and return on capital. So something totally different from a co-op. A key part of a co-op as well, and that's part of their, their principles, is about education and about helping members, helping members to improve their performance. That's a big part of what co-ops do, the knowledge transfer bit, the information, all that information from marketing co-ops going back to their members to help improve their performance, to improve their bottom line. The other thing to say about co-ops is that co-ops are governed by a set of values and principles. So it's the values of self-help, self-help, equality, equity, and solidarity. So they don't hand out the big and bowl 
looking for government to sort things out. They actually do it themselves. So it's this can-do attitude. It's about making things happen. And that values and the seven principles are really important. At the end of the day, it's all about trust. Trust and transparency, that's a key thing. And the final thing about the co-op business model makes them unique is co-ops take a long-term view. So a co-op business is never for sale. And that's really important. It's there for future generations. Unlike an investor-owned company, it's always for sale. They're always looking for an exit. So there's big differences between a co-op and an investor-owned company and, and really trying to understand the co-op business model. Donald Ross from Rainey Farm in Tame tells us about his journey with co-ops that led him to today being the Director of Scottish Agronomy. I'm Donald Ross um, and I am a cooperator. Um, now that might seem strange from someone who spends 300 odd days a year working by himself. But anyway, I'll give you a background. Um, I farm here at Rainey um, Fern um, near Tame. We're farming 280 um, hectares, 253 owned, including one we cropped. And uh, we have tw 27 hectares rented 15 miles away at Dornach. Um, we have 100 suckler cows um, and the progeny is finished generally, apart from this year, um, because the, the lure of the pound um, and I sold the heifer store, um, which was quite successful. So we have 250 ewes, uh, mule yows, and uh, they go away to, um, they go away store, they'll half go away store, and half are fattened, which you'd hopefully have 40 next week for a start. And um, So we've got eight let cottages and a 200 kilowatt biomass system. Um, uh, and that's basically um, to keep my, my wife happy. Um, we live in a big old farmhouse and it's Baltic nine months of the year. So of 160 hectares of arable land um, and 70 hectares of per permanent pasture and 50 hectares of woodland, uh, two SSIs and a loch. Soil types are variable. Um, it's mostly the arable land is uh, sandy loam over sandstone and the permanent is peat over blue clay, which makes life interesting during the winter. Fortunately, we're under the rain shadow effect, so we get 700 mils of rain um, and generally it's a very, very good area to, to live in, um, but don't tell too many people. Staff consists mostly of myself, as I said, for 300 years and uh, occasional casuals. I've got a, um, a mate who helps me out with cattle, really cool, calm, collected guy who is opposite to me. Um, and I use contractors for um, silage, lime and baling and when something breaks down and I need a fire engine. We started in... Uh, the 80s and father, um, during the 80s, the lamb price was pretty poor, 35, 40 pound a lamb. Seemed to last like that for a long time. And he, him and uh, a neighbour and a few guys from Nairnshire formed uh, Murrayfirth Lamb in the, in the 80s. So he's a founder member. And uh, I vaguely remember him going off to meetings as a kid, as a kid um, and being full of enthusiasm and coming back. And um, lambs de departing to north of England for um, to be turned into kebabs and whatever. Um, and then in 1989, we ha had HBS uh, formed the, the local, it was Highland Machinery Ring originally. Um, and we were uh, uh, early members of that as well. Um, and we joined Highland Grayton and Scottish Agronomy in 1997 for the same reason. We had a Ramularia infection in the spring barley and 10 and a half an acre didn't seem very good. Um, so. We joined Highland Grain to improve the marketing um, and uh, take, a, take, the, take the heat off the, the business a bit there. And um, we joined Scottish Agronomy to get, get independent advice. Now, my own personal journey, I started working for HBS in 1999 um, on the road in the office. Um, and at the time, it was turning over just over a million quid. Um, and it tried, the aim for me was to try and expand the business a wee bit. and. Uh, I mean, to be fair, I was in the office more than I was on the road, but really enjoyed it. Um, there was three, three, three girls working there. Um, and, you know, it felt like you're actually making a difference at the time. Um, a lot of straw, a lot of um, diesel being sold, um, bits and pieces of contracting um, and, and that. And then after that, I focused on the family, um, my three children, my wife, 
did a bit of contracting at home um, as well. We did, used to do a lot of crop spraying, got a direct drill um, and bits and pieces like that. And then 2006, got invited onto the board of uh, Highland Grain, which was a transitional thing for me. I mean, I wasn't, probably still am, I'm the most confident person in the world, but um, I was there for 12 years, um, just got into the business. Uh, Simon Barry was a, a big influence on me, kind of uh, um, get, help, helped me out, gave me a lot of confidence um, and just generally, uh, I mean, you just got to know the business very well. Um, I was eventually chairman for five years um, and eventually we, uh, I was involved in selecting the new um, MD, um, Gary took over there um, and I'm currently a director of uh, Scottish Agronomy. Um, just, yeah, just uh, really enjoy it. Um, just the like-minded individuals that are on it. Um, no, it's, it's a good, good thing to do. Yeah, so Scottish Agronomy, um, as, like I say, we joined in um, 1997 and it's developed into just a, a, a large um, a large co-op, a large um, ag agronomy co-op, um, 200 plus members. And it covers 50,000 hectares of cereals and has a large percentage of the um, Scottish potato area. Now, the key part about it is it's independent, impartial tri trials-led agronomy. So they have... 20,000 trial plots. Some of them are targeted at the members or the members can make suggestions as to what they're, what they're to do. Um, and they, they look and they take the data from that and see what's doing best. So as a member of Scottish Agronomy, you get an idea of what, is, what chemical, what regime is, um, is going to work most efficiently for your business. And you generally end up um, with, a, with, with good crops um, and uh, it, certainly, it certainly helps. It's also member focused. Um, like I said, the members get the members, have, they have member meetings, there's trials days, which I think was last week. Um, I, I, and then there's, uh, there's, there's member meetings in the, in the, um, the, the start of the year and the AGM where they have um, speakers from all over the world come out and come, out, come along and speak at it too. Um, and also the, there's a the knowledge hub, which is uh, basically all the, or as much information as they, they can get out over time. So you've got the bulletins, you've got um, trials data that, can, that, that goes back in time. Um, so you can see uh, how a specific chemical will work at, at specific times, which in this day and age, as we're losing chemicals, um, is important too. Um, so other co-ops, um, these are ones I'm, member, I'm, I'm members of, Aberdeen and Northern. We put all, all our stock, or virtually all our stock, goes through them, um, and uh, buy most of it as well. United Oil Seeds, they take an oil seed rate. There's a store two miles away. Um, it's fine and handy. Um, and Green Coat, utilise them for uh, some of my wheat and for my oats, um, which go to Boindy. Um, and it's just, I mean, I'm, as I say, I'm a cooperator. I, I enjoy um, enjoy using co-ops. Um, because it's owned by the farmer members and it's for the farmer members ben benefits it's one member one vote i mean i'm a reasonable size business but um if i had 50 tons I, my vote is worth the same as someone with 5,000 tons um and uh, the the, the co-ops generally work in the best interest of the members and finally on the podcast we hear from an international example of successful collaboration we speak to TJ Flanagan, who is the CEO of ICOS, the Irish Cooperation Organisation Society. ICOS represents over 300 co-ops in Ireland. I just want to, first of all, thank you for the invitation to speak here this evening. Um, I guess I was asked to give a flavour of what the cooperative movement has done or what it has achieved in, in, in Ireland. Uh, and I... I, what I want to share with you is just some of our experience and what has worked and what hasn't worked and maybe why things have worked and why things haven't worked. Um, I guess, first of all, just to explain yeah, ICOS, uh, the Irish Cooperative Organisation Society, uh, we used to be known up until about 50 years ago as the IAOS, the Irish Agricultural Organisation Society. So there's about a thousand co-ops in Ireland um, out of about 250,000 corporate entities. So the co-op is very much a niche. Uh, the co-op movement has its roots 
in the late 1890s, uh, sorry, the late 1880s, early 1890s, uh, when I guess it got traction in a lot of countries. Uh, and, you know, it grew very quickly for a few years as, as co-ops. And in the, at that stage, there were small, tiny little crossroads dairy cooperatives. But as they started to spread around the country, uh, dramatic expansion for the first few decades. And then I guess we had political turmoil and we had the First World War and we had a war of independence. And then we had a civil war and then we had an economic war with Britain and we had all sorts of shenanigans. So the, 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 the cooperative movements suffered for several decades. But certainly since we, I really joined the EEC and our agriculture started to get more organized, uh, the sector started to become progressive again. Um, so ROI, we're a little bit smaller than Scotland. We have about 7 million hectares in total. The agriculture really here, just like in Scotland, is largely influenced by the amount of rain we get. Uh, and those areas that get a hell of a lot of rain, their agriculture is, you know, that determines the type of agriculture. So it's, 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 it's sheep farming and it's heavy ground farming. Um, so about 10% of our total land area is used for forestry, and that's mostly dominated by the state forestry company, some private forestry, which we have some cooperatives involved with. About 64% of the land is used for agriculture, and of that, the vast majority is grass. So we're a, a grass grazing economy. Only about 10% of our, our, our arable land is actually uh, set down to crop production. About 100,000 farms, or what you could call farms, I think there's about 120,000 uh, holdings are registered for basic payments, but um, about 100,000 really are what you call farms, uh, averaging around 48, 40 hectares each. Um, of that 100,000, about 30,000 are what you call full-time commercial. Um, and of those, about 16 or 17,000 are dairy farmers. So the, the rest are probably semi-retired, part-time, off-farm incomes, lots of mix and gather them type operations. But there's about 30,000 are depending full-time for agriculture for their living commercial businesses. The range in incomes that, that, that people derive from farming. So the stats, Chagas, which is our, our National Agricultural Development Authority, uh, they do farm um, surveys every year. And the, the 2020 survey results were published, I think, only last week. Up the average dairy farm, which uh, has, of the people they surveyed, had an average farm size of 60 hectares. Uh, average farm income of 74,500 odd. Uh, cattle rearing, which is mostly suckler, suckler farming, average holding 30 hectares odd, 9,000 euros of an income. So you can see very much a, a, a part-time operation. Um, sheep farms, average 44 hectares. A lot of it is mountain land, 18,000 euros. Tillage, slightly bigger, 62 hectares, 32,000 odd. Uh, and the national average farm income is 25,000 euros. So uh, within that, there's a huge range, but you can see the dairy sector is really the only sector that can guarantee a sustainable income uh, with any kind of a holding size. So uh, just for what a co-op is, I'm sure it's pretty much the same thing in Scotland, but you know, what is a co-op as we recognize it? It's a, it's a corporate, it's an, it's an incorporated entity. So you know, it benefits from protection from creditors, limited liability. Uh, it's not a company, though. Companies are registered under our companies legislation. Our co-ops, about a thousand of them, are registered under an ancient piece of legislation that we inherited from Westminster when we were part of, of the UK. So the IPS Act 1893 and its successor legislation, we're still sort of dealing with that. We're about to get a new co-op act, but as of now, we still have that ancient piece of legislation. They're democratic structures owned and controlled by the members for the benefit of the members, and they're governed by unlike a constitution, I guess, which you have in a, in a company or a memorandum and articles of association, we have a rule book. And for our co-op members, they have an ICAS rule book. So we have a veto on amendments to the rule book, et cetera. But their body corporates, like any other, they just have a deeply democratic structure, which has upsides and it has downsides. So just so you understand, I guess, where our co-ops are, what, they, what, you know, what business they're at, dairy dominates the co-op uh, sector within Ireland. There's about 20 societies or 20 dairy societies really in business, but nine of them are actually processing. So when we say processing, they're actually evaporating and drying milk. Uh, about seven, some of those are, already, are processing as well, and others are, are non-processors who pack liquid milk for the domestic market. Uh, those co-ops would have supplier numbers ranging from about 40 to about four and a half thousand uh, of milk suppliers. The average milk supply in Ireland is about 500. 500,000 litres, sort of 80 cow operation. So that's the range and scale. So they're from the really tiny, really local to the 
quite quite big and quite evolved. Uh, between them, they process about eight and a half billion liters of milk in the Republic of Ireland, plus about eight hundred million uh, that they bring over the border from Northern Ireland. Plus, they process about another eight hundred million in Northern Ireland uh, in plants that they own in Northern Ireland. So they're quite big operators, and they process a lot of milk. And and within the Republic of Ireland, the co-ops are are companies owned by the co-ops process ninety five or six percent of the milk. So you know they dominate the milk sector. And those co-ops include what we call Ornua, uh, which is was formerly the Irish Dairy Board, which is the largest export arm for uh, dairy products uh, off the island. So, uh, you know, a two and a half billion euro, three billion euro company as well. So between them all, they total turnover. Well, if you added all their turnovers, they come to substantially more than five billion. But between them, they handle about five billion euros worth of dairy product. Um, most of them are also multi-purpose co-ops. So they're also very active in agri-trading, plus other bits and pieces, but they're quite dominant in agri-trading. So they buy about 60% of the grain in the country uh, and they manufacture about over 60% of the rumen and feed. So they are they have quite a big footprint in, in agri-trading as well. Um, so there isn't actually much by way of grain co-ops in the Republic of Ireland. The, the, the grain is bought by co-ops, which happen to be principally dairy co-ops. Uh, the next, I suppose, biggest sector would be the livestock mart sector, which are auction marts, just like you have in Scotland. There's about 80 of those nationally, but about, about half of those are actually co-op owned, and the co-ops are the bigger ones. Um, they would turn over about a billion euros, uh, and they'd sell about a million cattle and half a million sheep. So it's a, a sector that evolved from the 50s onwards as, as auction technology emerged, and very traditional businesses and, and up until a few months ago, they would never have dreamt of selling cattle online. You couldn't do that. No, people want to be there to buy the cattle. And next thing COVID comes along, the ultimate disruptor, and now they all have very, very good, well-developed offerings of online um, buying and selling of, of, of cattle. Uh, and since the marts have opened up again post-COVID, they're sticking very firmly to the blended model of buyers buying in the ring and buyers buying online. and. Uh, Everybody's delighted except the dealers who can no longer bully their way around the ring because they don't know who they're competing against because there's somebody on a laptop. So it's been a hugely positive development actually for, for Mars in Ireland. Yeah, also, I guess, well-developed, our crops are well-developed in livestock breeding sector. So we have um, three large AI, either co-ops or companies owned by co-ops, uh, cattle breeding and on the dairy or the, or the beef side. Breed societies, whether it's cattle, sheep, or horse, uh, the vast majority are co-ops. Um, and we have ICBF, which is the Irish Cattle Breeding Federation, which is kind of the umbrella body for everything got to do with cattle breeding. That's a co-op as well, a co-op of co-ops, and they have an ICAS rule. So, you know, anything really in the livestock sector is dominated by the, the co-op model, the co-op structure. But farm services as well are very well involved with the co-op model. So we have the, the farm relief service, which is a Kind of a federal structure of lots of well, it was originally lots of small regional co-op farm relief services uh and now lots of those have merged so we've actually won national big one with a couple of satellites but they're all co-ops and they provide specialized labor services and recruitment services and uh, principally for farmers but they've got into fencing and lots of other things as well and, you know the freeze branding and all those other services that specialized services that farmers require as well as relief milking and um, my first, my own first job was working as a as a as a, an operative for Mid Tipperary Farm Relief Services, and as I constantly remind them, I never won Employee of the Month, so um, probably as well that I left them. Uh, we have two farm accounts co-ops, which probably between them do certainly the vast majority of the farm accounts business for we say for commercial farmers. Uh, each one would probably have about twenty thousand um, clients, farm clients, um, started out. 40 years, 50 years ago, just um, doing very simple recording of records uh, before probably tax tax system was well developed. And now they're very sophisticated farm accounts business um, and, and, and one of them is an audit firm as well. So they're co-ops. And milk recording is, is um, dominated or principally carried out by three co-ops as well. So very dominant in that sector. Uh, and then other rural co-ops, we have what we call group water schemes. I don't know whether they exist in Scotland, but in Ireland, in, in the rural areas, um, either you have your own well or you have um, water provided by the, the, the county councils, which was probably the minority. 
uh, or you join a group water scheme. So we have about 300 of those um, which provide water for anything between 20 houses and probably 1,000 houses. And they're co-ops, the vast majority of them are co-ops, uh, providing a local service and doing it very efficiently, clean water to their customers. Forestry, I mentioned earlier, we forestry in Ireland is dominated by the Quilche, which is a state forest company, but we've increasingly more uh, private plantations where farmers have planted a bit of their land or a bit of hilly ground. Our investors have bought bits of mountains and planted them with Sitka spruce. But most private forestation, forestry plantations are sort of 10 hectares and less. They're not, they're not at the scale whereby you could carry out cleaning operations or marketing of your timber. So they have most of those, or a lot of those people have joined into co-ops, newly established forestry co-ops, procure the services they need or ultimately to sell their timber. Fisheries, we have fisheries co-ops and POs, producer organizations, which are co-ops themselves. They'd be more successful in the shellfish area than in the, than in the hunted species, but uh, we have a number of them. And we have three mushroom co-ops as well, which, uh, and they're registered as POs under European law as well. So the model is very flexible. And then we have new co-ops growing. Energy is an area everybody's interested in. A number of our existing co-ops invested in wind energy back through the years. Uh, and then we have new ones wanting to start, to community co-ops wanting to start afresh in either wind energy, but now it's actually solar. Solar is the biggest game in town. So we have lots of groups establishing now want to set up as community-owned uh, community wind or solar generation entities in Ireland. I don't know how it works in the UK, but there's there's preferential access to the grid, the community-owned electricity generation, sustainable electricity generation entity. So everybody wants to set up a solar energy co-op. Uh, and that's for, you know, um, a solar array of 10 hectares or 20 hectares or whatever. But the new areas where we bring together um, lots of small generators. So the, the current plan is that we put small arrays on, on the roof of every milking parlor. And that the co-op, the existing co-op, would combine all the, the their members who happen to have solar arrays on their milking parlors or their cattle sheds. And we have a, a virtual electricity generation network with preferential access to the grid for their surplus power. Uh, carbon farming is a new area. Um, we've had a couple of co-ops set up on that. So there are groups wanting to either buy or, or, or lease or manage land uh, with a view to ultimately selling some sort of carbon credits, which will be verified to... I don't know, an airline or a retailer or somebody who wants to be able to say that their operations are, are, are offset somewhere. Uh, lots of community development co-ops, small rural community co-ops providing services. Uh, and now the, all the hipsters, of course, are now getting involved in they like the, the concept of co-ops. So there's lots of inquiries around new media and areas like that. We don't ultimately know whether we get traction there, but we're dealing with a lot of requests in that area. So... Um, What's the big issue facing Irish agriculture and Irish dairy? Just again, this is just to illustrate the nature of co-ops. The big issue facing us, like lots of people, is the environment, uh, the planet. Uh, for us, it's emissions, greenhouse gases, and ammonia, uh, water quality, so nitrates and phosphates, and biodiversity. Those are the big regulatory frameworks from Europe and at national level that are coming down the tracks, and they're the big challenge to our sector to, to, to comply with it, and we have to. I guess, look at the strengths and weakness of the co-op model to address it. Um, so we do have to deal with those issues. But co-ops, because their co-ops have structured themselves quite well to deal with it, um, they have set up a sustainability, sustainability advisory program. So specialist advisors that they employ or contract to work with farmers, particularly on the water quality side of things. Uh, there's a project which, we've, which has been set up by Chagas, which is the state advisory service called Signpost Farms which picks 100 farms in the country to be the key influencers, like in social media. Uh, they're the influencers on all the technologies that we'll need to adopt to mitigate um, um, greenhouse gas emissions. So Chagas has identified a number of measures that have to be adopted um, for us to mitigate our greenhouse gas emissions. And we're using the signpost farm model with a number of farms in each co-op area. Uh, and those will be the influencers and other farms we visit them and look at the protected ureas and the low emission spreading and all the other measures that will be used to mitigate emissions. Uh, they pay sustainability bonuses for milk, supporting milk recording, and again, promoting protected urea and low emission spreading. So the co-op model, because the co-op answers to its farmers, because it's owned by its farmers, they could, you know, if it, if it was a private business, they could say, well, listen, it's up to the farmer to produce the milk, we just pay them for it. 
uh, not with a co-op, you kind of have to support. So, you know, it, it, it works on that basis for us. And in summary, I guess, uh, the co-ops in Ireland, you know, I have to say this, but they have a long and proud tradition. They've been most successful in milk, agri-trade, farm services, spectacularly unsuccessful in red meat. Uh, they certainly weren't an over, overnight success. Things have been, you know, were really tough for, for decades and decades. I, I guess it's been the recent expansion in milk that has allowed them to, I guess, flex, flex their muscles. They've got, and this is an interesting one, co-ops have got best traction where there's been market failure. If any individual entrepreneur, if they could do with themselves, they would do with them themselves. Why would they collaborate with seven other people, potentially seven, seven competitors? Uh, if you could do it yourself, you would. Um, but if you can't do it yourself and you need that bit of scale and you need to collaborate with your direct competition, the co-op model is a great way of doing it. But it really only has succeeded where there has been market failure. Trying to force cooperation where it's not really necessary or not particularly needed generally is doomed to failure. People need to have realized that they'll fail doing it, doing it on their own. Then they collaborate. Co-op model is a very good way of doing it. Then generally it works. Uh, but being a co-op itself isn't a, isn't a guarantee of success. You know, just, just having a happy, clappy co-op model, whilst I mentioned before, lots of hipsters in Dublin want to set up co-ops to run coffee shops, co-op baristas, because uh, the brand is some sort of kudos. In the real world, the farmers live in, that's not enough. Um, to be successful, you need to have a sound business model. You need to be competitive. You need to be efficient. So that's the prerequisite. This podcast was created using excerpts from interviews from a series of webinars recorded in summer 2021. This series of webinars is titled Cooperation and Collaboration, and all three can be found on the faz.scot website under the Rural Business tab. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Farm Advisory Service podcast. If you enjoyed it, consider sharing this show with your friends or leaving us a review. If you're looking to learn more, there's a wealth of information available for free at www.faz.scot. Finally, if you're so inclined, you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at FazScott to stay up to date with our latest releases. All the information that you need can be found below in the description. Thanks for listening.